This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. I wanted to uh, start the discussion by presenting a patient to you. And the patient's a 65-year-old gentleman who gets admitted to, in this case, the burn intensive care unit because the patient sustained deep third-degree burns on about 20% of his body involving his lower extremities. But he has a history remarkable for some atherosclerotic coronary disease. He has atrial fibrillation uh, chronically, goes in and out of sinus rhythm. Uh, the cardiologists only uh, hope that they can keep the ventricular rate controlled, and that's with the use of amiodarone. And the patient has a history of hepatitis C, but no real alterations in the patient's uh, liver function test. patient goes to the operating room uh, for excision of the burns and placement in allograft, trying to stage the operative procedure due to the patient's comorbidities. And in the post-operative period, the patient begins to complain of some abdominal distension, uh, not uh, really any kind of pain. He is passing flatus, having some uh, liquid bowel movements, and um, a little bit of respiratory embarrassment because of the gastric distension. You examine the abdomen. He's uh, got, obviously, a distended abdomen. It's tympanic, and there's no guardian or rebound tenderness to palpation. Rectal exam is normal. You get a flat plate of the abdomen, and on the flat plate of the abdomen, you notice some uh, rather uh, significant uh, distension, air-filled colon, all the way from the right colon all the way to the cecum, and a cecum measured about 14 centimeters in diameter. Uh, you obviously check some electrolytes, but your diagnosis of this is what's commonly referred to as Ogilvy's, uh, which may or may not be the appropriate name, um, but perhaps the more uh, politically correct or the more precise um, name that we call this now is acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. Uh, acute colonic pseudo-obstruction um, can have results in delayed in diagnosis or even inappropriate therapy, and it frequently uh, occurs, and it can result in markedly increased morbidity and mortality. There was a retrospective analysis done by the group at the Mayo Clinic, and nearly half of eligible patients did not receive the standard medical therapy uh, for acute uh, colonic pseudo-obstruction. And that could be referenced by Loftus and colleagues in American Journal of Gastroenterology near 2002, pages 3,118 to 3,122. As in any discussion, we need to make sure that we're clear on the definitions. And some of the definitions, particularly if you're a surgeon or gastroenterologist, may be fairly comfortable with. If you're not, these may be somewhat confusing to you. The definition between a mechanical obstruction and ileus and in the case of this podcast, clonic pseudo-obstruction. A mechanical uh, obstruction is severely impaired transit of intestinal contents because of intrinsic luminal obstruction or extrinsic compression. Basically, if you imagine the garden hose on the driveway and it gets pinched by somebody standing on it or it gets twisted around itself because it gets hung up on a car tire, that's similar to what we see in obstruction. Extrinsic could be due to uh, something uh, such as a tumor. Intrinsic, it could be um, uh, extrinsic. It also could be extrinsic compression, such as a, a hernia. Um, um, uh, small bowel uh, adhesion could cause it. Uh, any kind of adhesion could cause uh, an obstruction uh, or even a tumor. Uh, those are the most common things that you'll see with mechanical obstructions. Now, an ileus is a functionally impaired transit of intestinal contents because of decreased peristaltic activity of the gastrointestinal tract in the absence of mechanical obstruction. So basically, there is no impairment of the lumen of the bowel in the case of an ileus, but the actual 
process of peristalsis, the muscular contraction of the bowel, moving um, food or stool from point A to point B is impaired, even though the lumen of the content is not obstructed. Uh, Colonic pseudo-obstruction is a severe, functionally impaired transit of colonic contents and massive dilatation of the colon in the absence of mechanical obstruction because of uncoronated, non-peristaltic, or attenuated colonic muscle contractions. So, not an extrinsic um, a force or an intrinsic force such as a tumor or a hernia or something such as a colonic volvulus. You may or may not hear the term megacolon thrown around. Megacolon denotes an extremely dilated colon. Um, and how we define megacolon is a luminal diameter of more than 12 centimeters at the cecum, 8 centimeters for the transverse colon, or 6.5 centimeters for the descending sigmoid colon as determined by a radiographic uh, study. Why these differences in measurement has to do with really the uh, diameter of the bowel at those particular segments. It's a great question that we typically ask residents and medical students, and we'll explain it a little bit later here in this particular lecture, but it has to do with the law of Laplace. law of Laplace is used a lot in different points of physiology, whether you're talking about uh, wall tension in regards to uh, congestive heart failure or wall tension regarding a colonic pseudo-obstruction. But law of Laplace is defined as tension equals pressure times radius and as we increase the radius uh, of a um, a viscous perhaps the ventricle uh, in a a dilated cardiomyopathy or the cecum and somebody's got clonic pseudo obstruction you increase the the wall tension and wall tension actually goes to ischemia in the case of the colon so the greater that tension or excuse me the greater that radius of the the uh, cecum the greater the tension the more likelihood for perforation and also the more likelihood for uh, intestinal wall ischemia in this particular lecture, I want to stay focused on colonic pseudo-obstruction, uh, not so much dealing with uh, ileus that you might see in a small bowel. But it was initially described, uh, Ogilvy first described colonic pseudo-obstruction uh, back in 1948, and he described initially with retroperitoneal malignancies infiltrated in the celiac pr- uh, plexus. Dudley and his colleagues uh, named the term uh, acute colonic pseudo-obstruction in 1958. And they recognized that obstruction is functional rather than that of a mechanical. You may also, uh, in addition to hearing Ogilvy's called acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, uh, you can also hear it referred to as colonic ileus. Uh, the term colonic ileus is usually frowned upon because ileus suggests uh, motor inactivity, but in the case of acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, you can have uh, motor activity. It just is frequently non-peristolic in nature or not, in cor- uh, not coordinated. Basically, it's unable to move something, be it solid matter or air, or air but or having problems moving it from point A to point B. How Ogilvy's or acute clonic pseudo-obstruction occurs is, is really not well understood, um, and it's really considered to be multifactorial. Um, the main theories involve an imbalance of autonomic influences that can produce a hypotonic bowel, uh, either through an increase in sympathetic activity or a decrease in parasympathetic activity. Usually patients who present with acute clonic pseudo-obstruction have some underlying medical or surgical uh, disorder. They're usually pretty complicated patients. Uh, And there's a variety of things, uh, medications, operations, infections that can be associated with clonic uh, 
um, um, pseudo-obstruction. The drugs typically involved are things like opiates. Uh, sometimes it's, it's pretty unreasonable to have a post-operative patient like the patient we presented here and expect that you're not going to be able to give them opiate. As a surgical resident, I've seen many patients we would get consulted on on the orthopedic service who'd had a rather large uh, orthopedic procedure, and again, they were on opiates. And as the typical recommendation would be to minimize the use of opiates. Well, how realistic is that? Uh, calcium channel blockers could be a, another etiological factor. In this patient, we said that he had um, uh, atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular rate that we try to control the amiodarone. But in, in cases where his ventricular rate uh, got out of control rather than rebulsing, our cardiology consultants asked us to use calcium channel blockers, IV cardiazem. Antidepressants and phenothiazines, antiparkinson medications or other medications that can cause this, clonidine, um, certain chemotherapy agents, as well as cortical steroids. Different types of uh, traumatic injury can predispose a patient to developing acute uh, colonic pseudo-obstruction, pelvic trauma, thoracic trauma, certainly spinal cord trauma, and long bone fractures. Uh, neoplasms, not something I deal with very often as a trauma surgeon, but hematological malignancies, retroperitoneal malignancy, be mindful that that was Ogilvy's initial uh, case. Pelvic radiation therapy, paraneoplastic syndrome, as well as multiple myeloma. Um, connected tissue disorders such as scleroderma, lupus, and vasculitis can predispose a patient to uh, an Ogilvy's. Postoperative conditions, uh, cardiac surgery patients, renal transplant, C-sections, GYN surgery. Orthopedic surgery has probably been the one that I've seen most during my training. Spine surgery as well as urological surgery. Uh, certain infectious processes may uh, predispose a patient to uh, Ogilvy's as well. Acute cholecystitis, meningitis, pelvic abscesses, pneumonia. Uh, you can imagine a variety of neurological conditions. Metabolic disturbances such as severe electrolyte imbalances. This is one of our, our typical recommendations is make sure we replace all the electrolytes. Renal failure, diabetes, and a history of alcohol abuse. The list goes on and on, and it's very easy when we present these lists to assume that there is a cause and effect relationship such that if, well, somebody is in post-operative condition, they're getting opiates and their potassium is 3.4, to assume that if we get rid of the narcotics, increase their potassium, that we're removing the causative factors of the Ogilvy syndrome, and therefore the patient will get better. We don't have that evidence. What we have here is an association. There's a lot of things that are going on in these patients, and be mindful that there's a multifactorial problem, and we don't have uh, um, a, a cause and effect relationship with the things we've just mentioned. We know that if you have any of those conditions, that you have a higher association for developing acute uh, clonic obstruction or ogilvase. Here's an interesting tidbit. In a review of 1,027 cases of acute clonic pseudo-obstruction from 1948 to 1987, Okay, almost 40 years. 93% of the cases had underlying disorders, including um, postoperative status in 23.1%, cardiopulmonary disease in 17.5%, non-operative trauma uh, in 11.2%, neurological disease in 8%, malignancy in 5.4%, intradominal pathology in 5, excuse me, in 4.6%, um, obstetrical disorders in 4.4%, and retroperitoneal pathology in 3.5%. What's the moral of the story? These are sick patients, and they have a lot of things going on, of which the colonic pseudo-obstruction is just another log on the fire that you as a provider just don't really need that hassle when it occurs.
narcotics and electrolyte disorders are frequently contributing factors, but often, like we said, they're not always the smoking gun that we like to uh, claim that they are. Now think about the kind of patients we said get this. Well, it can occur at any age, but it typically occurs in the elderly. Uh, males have a higher incidence than females. It most commonly occurs in patients who are hospitalized or institutional patients who are frequently debilitated. Obesity is another epidemiological factor. Symptoms typically develop over several days. The patients can present with massive abdominal distension like our patients and mild and diffuse abdominal discomfort with minimal systemic toxicity. This is a key point. One of the discussions that occurred in the care of our patients was that, well, he doesn't have abdominal tenderness. He shouldn't have abdominal tenderness. Most patients don't have abdominal tenderness. If we wait for the patient to have abdominal tenderness, before we become proactive, we've waited too long. We've waited for the bowel to get ischemic, or we've waited for the patient to perforate. Some more fun facts on Ogilvy's, or like I said, acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. Passage of stellar gas is absent in 50%. Well, that means in 50% of the patients, they are passing stellar gas, despite having a massively distended colon. So again, just assume that you know they're not passing gas, they don't have an Ogilvy's. Again, that's the um, patients who aren't passing gas or stooling, that may be more consistent with a mechanical obstruction. In fact, some patients paradoxically will have diarrhea. Other symptoms include abdominal pain, nausea, and uh, emesis. Fever occurs frequently in patients with bowel ischemia or perforation, but occurs relatively infrequently in only about a third of the patients without complications. Bowel sounds are hypoactive in about 31% of the patients. They're high-pitched in 17%, uh, and they're absent only in about 12%. Uh, but sometimes you may have normal active bowel sounds because the bowel is functional. Just remember, it's not coordinated, such the fact that it's not causing peristalsis. Abdominal tenderness tends to be mild and relatively infrequent with moderate colonic distension, but tends to become more progressively um, severe with increasing colonic distension because of the progressive colonic uh, ischemia. We typically put NG tubes in these patients, but it really doesn't, uh, is not very productive. It may reveal some scant clear fluids. As we, we mentioned earlier, you know, you need to differentiate this between a large bowel obstruction from a mechanical cause, and you really can't make the diagnosis of a clonic pseudo-obstruction uh, or typically an Ogilvy's after you, until you've excluded a large bowel obstruction. Patients who have bowel obstructions tend uh, typically to be more acutely ill. They have more severe abdominal symptoms and signs than patients who have the pseudo-obstruction. The pain with mechanical obstruction is more severe. It's mid-abdomen uh, mid or even suprapubic, and it's colicky, meaning it's spasmodic. If people have these crescendo and decrescendos as the peristalsis is trying to push against uh, that mechanical obstruction. If the patient is having obstipation, which means they're not passing stool or gas, that's more favorable of making the diagnosis of a large bowel obstruction. Feculent vomiting, again, suggests mechanical bowel obstruction. Uh, and feculent vomiting is something that if you've ever seen it, you won't forget it. The other thing that you'll see with these patients is you put an NG tube down. You're, it's almost like you're getting just this massive amount of nasty, smelling, uh, horrible uh, liquid stool from the NG tube. Again, this is very suggestive of a mechanical bowel obstruction. Now, what are your differential diagnosis? Well, your differential includes toxic megacolon and ischemic colitis. Now, patients with toxic megacolon are usually uh, generally more acutely ill. They typically have pretty high fevers, they're tachycardic, they have some pretty severe abdominal tenderness. Patients with colonic pseudo-obstruction tend to only be mildly or moderately ill. 
in the patients with pseudo-obstruction typically have minimal systemic toxicity unless uh, they have severe underlying uh, medical disorder or experience complications such as clonic ischemia, uh, perforation, or sepsis from the clonic pseudo-obstruction. Toxic megacolon tends to present with diarrhea that's more often bloody, uh, while uh, acute clonic pseudo-obstruction tends to present with constipation rather than diarrhea, and it rarely causes uh, bloody stools. And again, we have a, a podcast specific to uh, C. diff colitis. We talk a little bit about toxic megacolon uh, in that podcast. If you think the patient has toxic megacolon, flexible uh, sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy will reveal the characteristic pseudomembranes that you see with uh, uh, C. difficile infection. These are consisting of about 2 millimeter to 8 millimeter yellowish nodules uh, that are adherent to the underlying mucosa. If a patient's having a process of inflammatory uh, bowel disease, they can have exudate or ulceration characteristic of ulcerative colitis. Patients with ischemic colitis generally have abdominal pain that's more intense, more severe at onset. I mean, the amount of discomfort that these patients have is remarkable, and it's difficult to get the patient comfortable even with the uh, generous usage of narcotic analgesia. What kind of laboratory test should we order? Well, the typical stuff that you'd order on a sick patient in the intensive care unit. You want to get a hemogram, routine metabolic test. You want to measure the sodium, the potassium, calcium, mag, phosphorus, the uh, BUN, creatinine. You want to check the liver function test and even measure the thyroid test. Leukocytosis is present in 100% of patients with clonic ischemia or perforation, but it's only present in about 25% of patients with uncomplicated acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. Your plain films of the abdomen are going to reveal massive colonic dilatation. A patient who has an air-filled dilated colon that extends distally to the rectosigmoid all the way back to the sigmoid typically favors the diagnosis of acute clonic pseudo-obstruction rather than a large bowel obstruction, but this isn't something you really want to take to the bank. Um, uh, certainly, I would keep, based on that finding alone, I'd keep both in my differential. It's reported that about 80% of patients with acute clonic pseudo-obstruction will have simultaneous dilatation of the small bowel, although this dilatation is typically more pronounced. If you're having difficulty making the diagnosis between acute clonic pseudo-obstruction and a large bowel obstruction, you know, an unreliable marker is the use of air fluid levels. Uh, therefore, you may need to kind of uh, go at an additional uh, stage by either getting contrast enemas, CT scans, or performance of a colonoscopy to help to make the diagnosis. Contrast enemas, whether barium or water-soluble, are routinely performed to rule out large bowel obstruction. Uh, they can occasionally be therapeutic. Barium enemas account... Um, uh, barium enema in the case of acute clonic obstruction has a risk of about 1% of clonic perforation. Up to 20% of uh, patients fail to retain the enema. Water-soluble contrast can potentially dehydrate patients because of the contrast hyperosmolality. The use of colonoscopy is an excellent diagnostic and therapeutic tool in the case of acute clonic pseudo-obstruction or when you try to differentiate acute clonic pseudo-obstruction from a, a large bowel obstruction. Uh, colonoscopy is frequently formed at the bedside. It can be done in an unprepped colon, so we'll avoid the risks of clonic uh, uh, preparation. However, colonoscopy in these patients is certainly no walk in the park. Uh, it's an unprepped uh, bowel. The stool is thick and viscous. It's difficult to aspirate. Uh, makes the colonoscopy more difficult and dangerous because of the poor visibility. Um, Low-pressure normal saline enemas are sometimes administered before the colonoscopy to improve visualization. Colonoscopy is contraindicated in the presence of clinical or radiographic signs of peritonitis. What does that mean? That means don't do a colonoscopy if the patient needs an operation already. 
When the colonoscopy is done, it reveals a dilated, amodal, highly compliant colon. There's no point of obstruction and no intrinsic colon lesion. Well, what do we do to take care of these patients? Well, the most obvious is making an MPO, nothing by mouth. IV fluid hydration. Try to limit or discontinue the use of narcotics, sedatives, as well as anticholinergic medications. Try to fix the electrolyte abnormalities, particularly hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, hypercalcemia. Antibiotics should be started if sepsis is uh, suspected. Heart failure is aggressively treated if present. Hypothyroidism occasionally uh, is present in patients who have colonic pseudo-obstruction. And uh, obviously thyroid should be replaced. Um, we talked about NG tubes. Often they're inserted, but it really has very limited or really not a whole lot of efficacy in trying to decompress the dilated colon. A rectal tube attached to gravity uh, may help decompress an air-filled sigmoid colon, but really doesn't have any role in decompressing the proximal colon. Ambulation, if possible, uh, or frequent repositioning the patient if ambulation is not possible. Laxatives are typically avoided because uh, they tend to accumulate in a sluggish bowel because just be mindful what we're really treating here is a discoordinated um, uh, bowel motility. Typically, conservative management can be trialed for about 72 hours provided the cecal diameter is less than 12 centimeters and there's no signs of bowel ischemia, bowel perforation, or peritonitis. The abdomen should be um, monitored frequently to ex exclude any diagnosis of any colonic conditions such as a bowel obstruction. And um, should the conditions rapidly progress, uh, you need to be mindful the patient may have a surgical abdomen. One of the things that I find um, changing in, in our modern healthcare delivery system and the fact that we've got very um, fragmented care due to things like resident work hours and, and safety initiatives is that we used to say that the treatment for a lot of um, potentially acute abdomens or abdominal processes is serial abdominal exams. Well, a serial exam really is impossible uh, if one is working an 8 or 12 hour shift. And so one of the things that is helpful is that when you're signing over a patient is that to do the, do the abdominal exam uh, together so that one can see the magnitude of somebody's distension or the uh, how tender they are on palpation that you're able to transfer that information to the colleague who may be taking over the care of that patient. Do repeat abdominal films that is uh, basically every 12 to 24 hours to monitor cecal diameter and exclude any uh, pneumoperitoneum. Serum electrolytes and leukocyte counts should be checked daily. If the patient has continued colonic dilatation beyond 12 centimeters in diameter despite supportive therapy or the patient develops fevers, leukocytosis, metabolic acidosis, significant uh, abdominal signs, may indicate that uh, conservative therapy has failed and one may, needs, may need to cross the bridge into uh, more invasive means of uh, um, treating the, uh, the acute colonic suit obstruction. About 75% of the patients will uh, resolve spontaneously just with conservative therapy, and they typically do it in a meeting of four days. The pharmacotherapy or the drug therapy that's typically used for this is neostigmine, and this is something that seems to appear in board exams frequently. About 80% of patients with colonic pseudo-obstruction will respond to 2 milligrams of neostigmine uh, infused rapidly intravenously, and they'll have a response time of about 4 minutes. Uh, the dose may be reduced if side effects, particularly those of bronchospasm or bradycardia, are concerned. Glycopyrrolate, which is a cholinergic antagonist, um, 
sometimes co-administered to minimize some of the systemic cholinergic side effects. Favorable response to neosigmine occurs more frequently in females, the elderly, and the post-operative patients. Less frequently in patients who have electrolyte abnormalities. Contraindications to neostigmine include bradycardia, patients with severe cardiac disease, hypotension, patients with active bronchospasm requiring um, medications, patients with renal insufficiency, as well as pregnancy. Neostigmine should not be administered to a patient who is suspected of having a large bowel obstruction because it will induce colonic muscular contractions against that obstruction and it may actually lead to perforation. Uh, here's what we see on board exams a lot. Continuous cardiac monitoring is required during neostigmine administration uh, because of the uh, brief bradycardia that may be associated with its uh, use. Other side effects uh, of uh, um, Neostigmine use include excessive salivation, hyperhidrosis, crampy abdominal pain, emesis, uh, bronchoconstriction. They tend to be mild as well as transient. About 35% of responders relapse. Relapsers typically receive a second infusion of neostigmine four hours later, and they have about a 40 to 90% success rate. The um, use of colonoscopic therapy uh, has been uh, successful. Uh, decompresses the colon about 80% of the cases, and there's just a slew of references uh, for that. Um, in a review of 292 reported patients, 69% of patients had a successful initial colonoscopic decompression. The literature would suggest that the endoscopist does not really need to get all the way to the cecum, but adequate decompression could be obtained at the, hepatic, at the level of the hepatic flexure. But it's not likely you're going to be able to decompress the colon if you're sitting over in the left colon or at the sigmoid flexure. The use of colonoscopy is not without its risks. In a paper by Wegener and colleagues in surgical endoscopy in 1987, they reported in a retrospective analysis, uh, colonoscopic-related mortality was at 3.4%. Morbidity was at 1.7%, and morbidity included colonic perforation or ischemia. About one-third of the patients required repeat colonoscopy because of recurrent colonic distension. In the case of repeat uh, colonoscopy, a long tube decompression may be helpful. Uh, this is done by placing a, a long tube uh, to decompress the um, uh, colon by placing the tube over on the uh, right colon. Um, other things that have been attempted is the administration, once you've decompressed the colon, is the administration of polyethylene glycol after decompression. And it's the idea there is that may help with some of the prelapse, possibly because the uh, uh, polyethylene glycol may reduce nitric oxide production. In uh, one study, uh, patients who received daily polyethylene glycol uh, had a relapse, actually uh, had no relapse as well. The controls had a relapse rate of 33.3%. And that was uh, in a paper by Segoris and colleagues in Gut 2006, Volume 55, Number 5, pages 638 to pages 642. There are patients who fail uh, therapy um, uh, with medications as well as colonoscopy uh, and may need a more invasive type of uh, procedures done. We're going to discuss some of these, and, and some of these could be transperitoneal, um, uh, percutaneous, colonoscopic, laparoscopic. Um, perhaps the one people think of the most is uh, cecostomy. And uh, cecostomy can be done uh, by aspiration of a 22-gauge needle or an 8-12 French catheter 
Um, and there's been several small series of this. Complications by radiological cecostomy can include things such as catheter leakage, abdominal well, cellulitis, fasciitis, as well as sepsis. Uh, percutaneous endoscopic cecostomy is um, somewhat uh, modeled after the use of a peg tube using a pull technique. Um, and the idea of, of placing a uh, cecal tube in that regard for drainage. Complications, again, include pressure necrosis. Again, keep in mind that you're dealing with a very thin-walled, dilated cecum. Uh, often it's difficult to get uh, uh, endoscopists to even do colonoscopic decompression of a dilated cecum, uh, let alone try to imagine them um, uh, trying to uh, do an a, um, endoscopic percutaneous cecostomy. Patients can also develop profuse granulation tissue formation, abdominal wall cellulitis, abdominal wall fasciitis, sepsis, as well as just florid peritonitis. Surgical cecostomy or colostomy is associated with higher mortality rates as well as significant morbidities. In a series of 179 subjects undergoing surgery, the morbidity was 30% and the mortality rate was 6%. And the reference for that is uh, Vinick and colleagues. Um, the, the title of their paper is Acute Clonic Pseudo-Obstruction of the Colon Parentheses Ogilvy Syndrome, an analysis of 400 cases. And that present, was presented in Diseases of Colon and Rectum, 1986, volume 29, pages 203 to pages 210. Surgical therapy is really reserved for the pretty sick patients who don't respond to medical or colonoscopic therapy. Um, patient develops a colonic perforation, usually requires a total colectomy with an ileostomy because the anastomosis in a dilated thin wall colon to a non-dilated terminal ileum is not technically um, feasible and it's prone to leakage and severe morbidities and mortalities that go uh, with uh, leakage of an anastomosis in a patient who is, uh, has a lot of medical problems at the time of the operation. So that's uh, a, a basic background into acute clonic pseudo-obstruction. I want to kind of finish up going back to that law of Laplace, that when you're looking at that KUB and you're seeing that increased diameter, that cecum, that you're associating with that with an increased risk of perforation. If we go back to that article that I quoted by Vinek and diseases of colon and rectum, in that series, the authors had 400 cases. There was no colonic perforation occurred to the sequel diameter of less than 12 centimeters. We don't know what the incidence of perforation is left untreated because we typically will intervene. But when a patient has a perforation of acute colonic pseudo-obstruction, the mortality rate is between 40 and 50%. I need to correct an error that I said in one of our previous podcasts, and, and thankful to a listener who uh, sent uh, in an email and corrected me. In the podcast talking about oxygen-binding uh, blood substitutes, I used the word allograft and autograft incorrectly, which is pretty funny to me because I use these words daily as a burn surgeon, whether we're putting an autograft on a patient uh, or an allograft. An autograft is basically, in, re in regards to blood transfusion, is if I use my own blood. An example of an autograft uh, for blood transfusion would be the case of an orthopedic surgery patient who may bank their own blood uh, in order to be administered at the time of surgery. Uh, an autograft in burn surgery is when we take the patient's own skin and form a skin graft from, say, the thigh, and we move it to the chest. That's an autograft. An allograft is when we take... Uh, tissue from someone else. In the case of blood that we're using, in the case of blood banking, it is if I donate blood to you. Uh, that is considered an allograft uh, in the form of, of blood. 
In the example, burn surgery and allograft would be when we excise a burn wound and we cover it with cadaver skin. That would be an allograft. I'm sorry about that confusion. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, uh, Surgery IC Rounds. You can find us on iTunes, Dallas, also uh, from the website, icrounds.com. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for downloading and thanks for listening. Thank you.